Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. to be here today with Justin F. Marceau, who is a law prof- professor of law at the Brooks Institute, faculty research scholar of animal law and policy at the University of Denver and is visiting at Harvard. He serves as the reporter for the Pattern Criminal Jury Instruction Committee of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit and as an inaugural member of the Animal Welfare Committee formed by a proclamation of the Governor of Colorado to advise the first gentleman on strategies for improving the protection of animals in Colorado. Professor Marceau's research focuses on criminal law and constitutional law, particularly as those areas intersect with social change. He specifically writes in the areas of habeas corpus, constitutional law, and animal law, and is a fellow at the Oxford Center for Animal Ethics. I I first came across uh, the professor's work here in Beyond Cages, a book I highly recommend, something I've been thinking a lot about, animal law and criminal criminal punishment. We could talk for hours, but we're going to uh, jump right in here. Thank you for taking time to talk. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm honored to be on. Well, there's there's so much uh, that I want to ask you, but to start with with such a broad question, um, how do animal rights interact or intersect with human rights? Yeah, that's it's a great question. I mean, it turns out, I mean, a lot of the people that I um, a lot of my colleagues and people that I that I hang out with would think that there's some sort of zero sum game between animal rights and, and human rights. That as you devote yourself to animal rights, um, you're going to be leaving out humans. Or if you're, you know, if I'm committed to doing something for animal rights, uh, humans are going to suffer. Right there, there must be some sort of zero sum game. But it turns out that's just not true. Right? It turns out that there's an interconnectedness in the oppressions of of all the sentient beings in this this wonderful planet. And I would I would give sort of two examples. One is sort of direct correlations and the other is maybe um, kind of uh, impact. So in terms of correlations, there's an article just this year, well, it's actually last year, 2019, um, published by Yangsun Park and Benjamin Valentino in the Human Rights Quarterly. And they did a really interesting study that showed that those people who care most about animal rights turn out to care the most strongly about human rights, right? Literally human rights. So people who are out there working for animal shelters or helping the vegan cause tend to um, take more seriously issues of racial injustice, of poverty, of LGBT rights. Uh, and this was true across the states, a very, very comprehensive study. And then in terms of direct impact, I would just note that um, sometimes, and the research has backed this up, helping one oppressed class has more effect on the human rights or the protection of other creatures than in direct intervention, right? So I know you spent some time, Rabbi, at uh, UCLA and the Williams Institute there did some groundbreaking work that showed that interventions in a community to help the poor, for example, did more to help certain LGBT communities than interventions that were directly targeted to the LGBT community, which is just fascinating, right? So it turns out that when you help one oppressed group, you you rise up the tide of that human rights campaign, you will have all kinds of benefits on others. And so it turns out that helping animals 
can often help humans. Fascinating. So, so flipping that from um, how one form of, of oppression is connected with another form, how, how, um, how, how, or I, I'm sorry to, to, to say that the opposite, how standing up for one form of rights uh, um, supports the other, how on the opposite side, what are some ways in which some of the most egregious issues in our society today, namely mass incarceration and the prison industrial complex, are related to how we perceive and treat animals today as well? Yeah, well, I mean, this is one of the issues, I and mean, this is really what I take up in my book, like you said, in Beyond Cages. And, you know, I think for too long, the animal rights movement has taken for granted that we could equalize down and treat humans who do bad things to animals as something less, as something less than human, and, and sort of animalize them, if you will, and dehumanize them. And I guess the, the overriding theme that I, that I draw out is that that's not going to help, right? This is, this is a violation of human rights in an effort to help animals. And my point is animal rights folks should be interested in helping everyone and that the, the rising tide will help animals. But to answer your question more directly, I guess what I would say is we've normalized violence. We've normalized systemic suffering in this society. And this happens in prisons where we lock people up, right? We have 4% of the world's population, but we... Uh, have 25% roughly of the world's prisoners. Uh, lots of things you could say about the, the race and poverty impacts of our justice system, if you want to call it justice. But um, we tell ourselves that we need to do this, that we need to lock people up, because if we don't, we're going to have dangerous neighborhoods. If we don't, we're going to have recidivism. If we don't, we're not going to teach people not to commit crimes. It turns out these are all false hypotheses, right? We now know that the longer you lock someone up, the higher the rate of recidivism. We now know that punishing for certain crimes doesn't deter that crime. Right? But we continue with these sort of fables because they make us feel good. Well, the same is true in the animal realm, right? We lock animals up on factory farms and we tell ourselves that milk does a body good. We tell ourselves myths about the need for the human body to consume animal flesh in order to justify factory farms. We tell ourselves tales about conservation and how our kids need to learn about animals as a justification for zoos, right? But again, the research shows the opposite. It shows that these majestic creatures being locked behind cages um, teach humans to expect animals to be at our demand, right? Zoos aren't providing us this sort of conservation ethos. It turns out that hunters are more uh, likely to have a conservation ethos than children who are brought regularly to zoos. Hmm. Fascinating. So what's the nature of the suffering that comes with confinement? I think most would agree that killing in general is a problem, but I think confinement is a form of justice, as you said. But look, what's the nature and long-term impact for an animal or for a human of being confined? Well, that's one of the things, right? I mean, we see the same patterns of suffering across the species line, right? Steve Wise, the Non-Human Rights Project, many others have documented the stereotypical behavior of animals when they are locked in confinement, right? They start doing abnormal things. They express um, in their own ways depression. They express um, sort of a lack of ability to a loss of appetite. All these symptoms, and it turns out those are the same things that we see among prisoner populations, right? We see prisoners who um, dissociate, uh, lose connections with their loved ones, who are no longer able to um, sort of have, they put on what's called a prison mask, this, this lack of empathy uh, for when they return to the community. So the, the, the caging of, of these, these animals, humans and non-humans, have, have very similar uh, effects, right? We know that to be true. It's, it's, just, it's just a biological fact. Is there any type of confinement you would consider to be justifiable? Well, I mean, you know, confinement is a broad category. And so I think that um, there are times when we, we have to keep 
um, ourselves safe from something, right? And this, this, you know, this is this is the question of you know complete abolition. I don't think um, you know. I think sometimes you have to confine your beloved animal to have it treated by a pet, right? I just had to put my cat in a carrier to bring it in to see the vet. She didn't like that, um, but I was trying to do it in her best interest. Sometimes we might confine a person who is a danger to themselves or others. Um, civilly and try to get them treatment and interventions that help them, right? Um, so so I'm, I'm not for reduction of all confinement. I mean, there's hard questions behind that, which, you know, sort of prison abolition and the complete abolition of the, the industrial agricultural system. But but in terms of all confinement, I don't I don't think we would, we would get to that point. Great, great. So um, uh, uh, for me, the animal uh, issue is easy. We should eradicate factory farming as we, as we know right. it. Um, but I wonder what you see as, the, as some um, compelling alternatives to the prison system as we know it today. Well, yeah, I think that's, I mean, those are the hard questions, right? I mean, part of what I'm trying to do in my book and would challenge your viewers and listeners to think about is we've invested a lot of emotional energy and financial resources into the idea of this rogue bad actor, you know, the, the guy who chokes his dog horrendously in New York or something like that or suffocates his dog. We need to run a legislative campaign and we need to fundraise on and push a bill to have this guy, the felony, be 15 years instead of seven years or something, right? We've invested a lot of financial and emotional time into these projects. What we haven't done is devoted the resources and time to figuring out what the alternatives are to incarceration. And in that sense, right, we're not different than any other movement, right? The victims' rights movement, other tough-on-crime movements have similarly not invested in alternatives to incarceration. It's just a reality of our society. And so someone said, well, why should the animal rights movement be the guinea pig, right? Why should we not um, be forcing uh, incarceration if, if other crimes carry it? And I guess the answer is, you know, I would encourage the movement just to think more broadly, right? I mean, we have to be leaders in terms of empathy, leaders in terms of reaching out and showing that systematic oppression is bad. And if we can't do that, if we look like hypocrites ourselves, if we can't show that we have empathy that it sort of defies in some ways um, that of the average population, how are we going to convince people that the food on their plate, that the, the animals that we take for granted as property um, deserve respect? And so I would just challenge us to invest, right? Challenge us to be creative, to, to work with social workers, to work with counselors and try to come up with, with, with reforms. At the moment, I don't think there is a good solution. There is a great alternative, but that's true sort of systematic wide, right? I mean, we sometimes see the teenager who spray paints the high school going to prison. And I've had persons say to me, well, if that kid is going to prison, sure as heck it better be that this guy who abused a cat is going to prison prison. But that's a bit of a race to the bottom, right? I, I agree that lots of people are going to jail in this country. Um, but do we want to be sort of on the vanguard of that? Or do we want to sort of innovate? Yeah. And well, part of where I, the way I understood your argument as well was that, um, that when we incarcerate um, humans for how they, how they treat animals, that also in some way hurts animals because it sustains these systems of oppression, which are interconnected. Is that right? Absolutely. No, I mean, there's there's no question that, you know, I mean, so one of the things that I'm researching right now is this, this idea that um, we, what we don't have is hard data on animal criminal punishment because it just isn't something that the society has measured and cared about. But we do know, we already can, can link things through, through some demographic data I've done, that communities that are poor, communities that are primarily non-white, 
um, they report higher rates of intervention by law enforcement on animal cruelty issues, right? So where are police officers going out to enforce these laws that we would love to love, right? Like don't chain your dog up in your yard, anti-tethering laws. It turns out that those are being used more frequently in urban areas, right? Police go in and use those as a, as a wedge to get the person on a drug charge or something else. Um, and then it's also the case, right, that when you um, embody and embrace a sort of carceral, a, a prison-oriented framework, animals suffer. And I give concrete examples in the book, but, you know, to, to make one really concrete example, it turns out that when we, the movement, were pushing for felony laws, the industry was simultaneously creeping in exemptions to animal cruelty for um, all things that happen on factory farms, right? So we were saying, oh, look, we had a huge victory. The few dozen people a year in your state who might, um, you know, abuse their dog or cat um, can go to jail now. It's great news. They'll be called a felon for life. Uh, and then at the same time, the industry slipped in this uh, deal in the same bill often that said, well, factory farming should be entirely exempt from animal cruelty, right? So there's, there's these sort of direct trade-offs that happen. So, so um, perhaps a last question. Um, so, so as you know, uh, much of the law is not just about legislation, but about social persuasion. Um, and so if we were to take less of a deontological approach of just desserts that people should be punished harshly for what they deserve, and more of a consequentialist approach of trying to ensure the most just consequences for all involved, um, how, how do we actually convince, uh, you know, like what, is the, what are the tools of persuasion to convince uh, animal rights activists that actually not raising the, uh, the punishment higher is going to protect animals more? Like what, like, like, how do you articulate that? Yeah, I think it's hard. I, I mean, in consequentialist terms, I guess I would, I would say at, at the outset, I think of it in terms of imagining how do we increase the size of this tent so that it is inclusive of all race, religious, um, class type boundaries, right? And it's simply not the case that a group that is pushing itself as civil rights but has a tough on crime stance is going to find allies in communities that are persecuted. Um, so purely, I mean, I, I, this is not my perspective because my perspective is one that the movement needs to be, um, for sort of moral reasons that aren't just instrumental, needs to be inclusive. Um, from a purely instrumentalist perspective, it's entirely isolating for the movement to imagine itself as well, we're going to go have these allies. It's just so surprising to us that persons of color don't come to the movement in higher numbers. Why, why don't we have more poor people? Um, and then we are um, pushing tough on crime policies, right? Some of my research shows that persons of color um, and marginalized communities tend to associate animal rights people as tough on crime persons, right? Um, it also turns out that if we were to take a hard look at ourselves, um, I'm going to be publishing this data soon. Persons who associate with the animal rights movement and receive flyers for the animal rights movement tend to think that criminal justice interventions are a good way of solving social problems, right? So if there's a social problem, we as an animal rights movement have taught ourselves that the criminal law is the way to fix it. And that's a, that's a pathology that we're going to have to solve uh, if we want to teach the world that we're actually here for empathy and for sort of being a big tent, I think. Right. Amazing. Amazing. And I think your point also that it's uh, often deceptive from politicians who will show that they're animal rights lovers, but in the end are, are expanding the capacity of factory farming. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So Absolutely. friends, I hope you'll pick up Beyond Cage's Animal Law and Criminal Punishment, Justin Marceau, Cambridge Publishing. Whether you're interested in law, ethics, human rights, animal rights, a lot to think about here. Professor, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Robert. I appreciate it.